Thanks for listening to this message. For more information about The Exchange, visit www.theexchange.cc or you can visit us for one of our Sunday gatherings each Sunday at 9.15 and 11 a.m. Well, I realize that many of you are thoroughly disappointed in me right now in this moment because you thought that I might approach the stage today with a cardigan sweater on and that I might grab a seat on the stage and take off my shoes while I sing you a song. But fortunately for all of us, including myself, especially myself, I chose not to do that today. Uh, Man, we're kicking off a brand new series today called Won't You Be My Neighbor? One of the phrases that we quickly identify with the show Mr. Rogers Neighborhood. Quick show of hands, honest confession. How many of you have been influenced by Mr. Rogers Neighborhood? All right, good. I'm talking to a good crowd today. Hey, over 30 years, um, that show aired on television and impacted kids. And I will admit that I am one of the kids that watched that happen. And I was impacted by that. Um, But I'll, I'll be really honest also that uh, over the last couple of weeks as we got ready for this series, I went back on YouTube because everything's on YouTube. uh, And I went back on YouTube to try to find the theme song for Mr. Rogers Neighborhood. And of course, there's like all different versions of it. But as I went back and I watched like the real thing play out, all those things that I watched when I was three and four and six and 15 years old, whenever, uh, just kidding, it wasn't that bad. But when I went back and watched that, like as I watched the whole thing play out, that 60 seconds or whatever, like it was a little bit creepy. Like it was, it's a little bit weird. Okay. Just be honest in today's culture to think about a guy, a grown man walking in for a little kid's television show and he takes off his sweater and hangs it in the closet and he takes off his shoes and he's singing the whole time. Like it was, it was a little bit awkward. So I chose not to show that today. If you want to go back and kind of reminisce, you can go back on YouTube and check that out. But you know, I got to thinking like neighbors are kind of weird, aren't they? Can we just agree with that? Like sometimes neighbors are a little bit weird. I did some research on your behalf this week, uh, so you can thank me for it later, uh, with a list of some of the top weird neighbors or annoying neighbors that we have to all put up with. They're all in everybody's neighborhood. So maybe you'll identify one of your neighbors on the list. I'm going to give you seven of them. Uh, Here's number one. The first type of annoying neighbor is the snoop. The Snoop. Nothing gets by the Snoop. They're all up in your business. Uh, they know what you've got going on before you've even done it. That's awesome. Uh, the Snoop puts the NSA to shame because they have a lot of extra time on their hands. And the Snoop is always over expressing their concerns for you, right? All claiming that it is for your well-being. That's just kind of how the Snoop does the thing. Anybody got the Snoop in their neighbor? Don't do it. They might be here. Okay, don't do it. Uh, number two is the party animal. We love those folks. Uh, you never know what night of the week the party animals might roll out their Nick Shindig. Uh, but the party animals never party alone. They always add to the mix, so they'll have another 10 to 50 friends in cars that are par- conveniently parked next door, right? And they love to party at all hours of the night, especially the hours that you like to sleep. Uh, I'm not going to ask if they're here today because they probably didn't make it. Number three, uh, the borrower. The borrower, at first, now the borrower can seem really nice. Like they're probably an enjoyable, harmless neighbor in need, and so you willingly loan them or offer to them your new shiny wrench. Let's say you you got that at the Home Depot and they've got a leak in their basement. And so you loan it to them. But you know the problem if you've been there before. Days turn into weeks and weeks turn into months and you need your rich. All right. And so you've got to now go have the awkward conversation with your neighbor, the borrower about your property like it belongs to you. And so it seems that when you go have that conversation that they conveniently get memory lapse. And it's like, no, I think I already returned that. Or maybe you've gotten this one before. 
What rich are you talking about, right? I don't remember that. That's the borrower. Uh, Number four, the gossip. Don't do that. Just don't do this, okay? The gossip is quick to grab your ear, go into fake BFF mode. They air the dirty laundry of nearby residents with little to no regard for truth. In fact, the bigger the lie, the better, right? I mean, if we can, you know, exaggerate this, that's probably right. Now, here's what the gossip will say. They're saying that they are providing a public service to you. This is just to help you out. But really, here's what they're doing. I'm letting you inside, all right? They are really trying to get some dirt on you so that they can go next door and share that about you. Just don't, don't share with them. That's the gossip. Number five is just what we'll call the weirdo creep. Everybody has a neighbor who's just a little bit more than a little bit off. Now, the weirdo creep is a mysterious recluse that you can count the number of times you've seen them. All right? In those rare sightings, they never returned your hello or your smile, and that's where it got really weird. The weirdo creep's presence is usually identified by the sudden sporadic movement of their always drawn curtains or blinds because you believe they're always watching. Anybody got the weirdo creep in your neighborhood? Just go ahead and admit it. All right, I know not to move next to y'all. That's great. Number six. Number six is the zookeeper. Does the outburst of next door animal noises sometimes make you feel like your home is surrounded by a pack of hungry wolves or that your home has been magically transported to the middle of the Serengeti? Anybody got a zookeeper in your neighborhood? That's great. Because your neighbor, the zookeeper, they love animals, very loud, destructive, and disruptive, annoying animals, and lots of them. So you don't even need the noise machine anymore to go to sleep because thanks to the zookeeper, it's now kind of like your bed has been placed in the middle of the rainforest cafe. Isn't that a lovely place, right? That's the zookeeper. And then number seven, maybe my favorite, this one's awesome, is the yard art addict. The yard art addict. Don't be that person. Just don't. You see an old disgusting toilet, but the yard art attic sees a hilarious plant throne, right? You have that on your street. Destroy that. The yard art attic strongly disagrees with the adage that less is more. They believe more is more. And as a bonus, your street is now visible from space. And however, this man-made wonder of the world that is the yard art attic mostly is comprised of items found in the bargain bins at either Hobby Lobby, Walmart, or last week's garage sale. Anybody recognize your neighbor just like on one of those things you're willing to go like, oh, yep, my neighbor's one of those, okay? If you, here's the truth, if you don't recognize one of those as being one of your neighbors, it might be you. I'm just saying, it might be you. I'll let you in on that today. Hey, we're kicking off a brand new series talking about what does it mean to be a neighbor. And so here's our goal over the next few weeks is this right here. We want to talk about what does it look like for us to personally and also for us corporately as a spiritual house, a spiritual family, to be a neighbor to the world and the community around us. So if you've got a copy of scripture, go to Luke chapter 10. In the New Testament, Luke chapter 10, and if you're brand new to us, we will put the verses up on the screen behind me um, just for you to track along with where we will be. Now, as you go to Luke chapter 10, you're going to find probably a pretty familiar story with most of you. You're going to recognize that. But here's what I think we're going to see today. We're going to see some truths about what does it mean not only to be a good neighbor, but what does it mean to be a good follower of Jesus? That's the greatest call out of today. And so we're going to look at this story in Luke chapter 10. And let's pick up in verse 25 and we'll we'll see what happens. It says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, the man asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 26, what is written in the law? Jesus replies, and how do you read it? The man answers in verse 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and Love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28, Jesus says, You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. 
So this man engages Jesus by asking a pretty good question, a pretty important question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, being the great teacher that he was, he responds to the man's question with a question of his own. And he says, well, how do you read the law? What do you think it says? And the man responds back and he says, well, it says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Oh, yeah. And it says to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, we got to set something really clear at the forefront of today and this series is that we don't earn our way into salvation. What Jesus is not saying is he's not saying, hey, cut your neighbor's grass or pick up their newspaper for a month and all of a sudden eternal life is yours. That's not what Jesus is saying. But what Jesus is trying to teach us here in this moment is that we must first understand God's great love for us and then we respond to that with a life of surrender and love of God. And then it is out of that overflow of that number one of God's love for us and number two of our surrender and love for God that is out of that overflow that we begin to become the neighbor or the follower of Jesus that God has called us to be. So loving our neighbor starts with understanding how Jesus has loved us and then how we are supposed to love him. So from the outset of today and from this series, we've got to all understand that it's when Jesus sits, until Jesus sits on the lordship and the leadership throne of your life, not playing the game of church. All right, we, we can all do that. We're good at that. But until Jesus really has leadership and lordship over your life, until that happens, you'll never really become the neighbor or the follower of Jesus that God has called you to be. And so here's, here's what that means for us practically today as we're going to sit here for the next 30 minutes or so. It means this, that for some of you, for some of you who are not really in Christ, some of the things that we're going to say today, some of the things that we're going to read and I'm going to talk about, they're, they're going to sound ludicrous to you. They're, just, they're going to sound absolutely crazy. You're going to be like, ain't no way, bro. Forget it. Because the unconditional love of God has never really entered your life. You've never really put Jesus in the lordship place of your life. And we're really grateful you're here. Like, don't, don't mistake that. Like, we love the fact that you're here. But here, here's our hope for you today. Our hope for you today is first that you would understand the unconditional love of God for you. And then out of that, that you would then become the neighbor, the follower of Jesus that God's called you to be. But a lot of people in the house today, and a lot of you are in Christ already. Man, you've made that, that, that exchange, as we say, the exchange of old life of sin and self. And at some point in your journey, you made Jesus master and Lord and leader over your life. And you're trying to follow him with your life. And if that's you, here's my hope for you and for me over these couple of weeks. is It's just a, a really strong encouragement and reminder. Because every once in a while, we need that kind of challenge and just, hey, get back in the game. This is what I've called you to. And so let's go back to our story, pick up verse 29 where we left off, and let's see how the man responds next. Jesus asked the question, the man gives a good response, Jesus goes, you're right, verse 29, but he, meaning the expert in the law, he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now here's what's happening. This guy who knows the law inside and out, he, he's starting to feel really good about himself. And he's like, hey, I, I've kind of got this whole love God thing down. Like, I'm really good at the law. I'm awesome at that. And then he's starting to begin to think, hey, I think I even am pretty good at loving my neighbor. Like, like I think I got that down. And so he asked this question, Scripture says, to justify himself, to try to, to kind of affirm, pat, give himself a pat on the back. And so did you see the question he asked? He asked, who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Now, when we think about the word neighbor in our context, our culture today, what do we think about? 
we think about the people that physically live close to us, like, you know, the weirdo across the street, and we got the zookeeper right here, all right, and then, you know, the party animals are right here, or they're two doors down, or they're right here and two doors down. I can't even figure them out. I don't know if they're the same people living in those two different houses or what's going on. Like, that's the neighbors we think about right around us. But as Jesus talks about neighbor, as he uses that word neighbor, it's so much bigger than that. In fact, the original Greek word that's used here means one who is near. And that word is translated from the Hebrew word that actually means this. Check this out. It says a person with who one, whom one has something to do with. So here's what that means for us today, practically 2017, is that whether you live in a heavily populated neighborhood with a whole bunch of people and they all walk along the sidewalks and walk their dogs every night, whether you live in that neighborhood or whether you rolled in today from like your house out in the country and you can't see houses for miles, even in the broad daylight, we've all been called to be a neighbor. We all have that calling on our life to be a neighbor in your school, in your neighborhood, at your apartment complex, in your workplace, on your job site, on your ball team, and whatever social circle God's put you in, all of us today, none of us can escape the calling that God has put in front of us to be a neighbor to the world around us. And so here's my challenge. Here's the hope. Quite honestly, I'm just going to be upfront with you. Here's my challenge out of today and out of these two weeks together is for all of us to be open to be a neighbor to whoever God's called us to. And so here's what I want you to ponder over the next little bit. If you get anything out of this, I want you to think, and maybe God's already kind of put that person in front of you right now. Who, who is it in your world, in your sphere of influence, at school, at work, at your own house, in your neighborhood, that God has put in your life for you to be a neighbor to? Who is that? And over the next little bit, we're going to talk about some truths on how you can live that out. So Jesus responds to the man's question with a story or with a parable. If you're familiar with the scripture, Jesus used parables and stories a lot. He knew we were going to be ADD and he's like, they like stories. So we're going to go with stories. And so here's what he tells us in Luke chapter 10, verse 30. We're going to read this whole story together and then we'll come back and talk about it. It says, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. So a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw the man, and he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, verse 33, as he traveled, he came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his donkey and he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave it to the innkeeper and he said, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Verse 36, Jesus looks at the man and he says, which of these three expert in the law do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus looked at this expert in the law and he told him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. So we see see in this story three pretty clear approaches to what does it mean to neighbor the world around us. And not only do I want us to think about it in the context of this story, but I want them to apply them and attach them to our life today, 2017, and your world and where you are. So three different approaches. Here's the first approach that I think we see in the story. It's what we'll call the religious approach. The religious approach. Jesus says in the parable that the first man to pass by the injured man on the side of the road was a what? He was a priest. He was a priest. 
But it says that for some reason, rather than exercising compassion and doing the thing that would have been logical for any person to do, but especially a priest, this man fails to show love and he passes by on the other side. Now, as we think about that today, right, sitting in a church building today, we go, well, like that guy, like he should have known the scriptures. Like he knew the law. He knew what God called him to do. And we could think even more in-depthly to go, perhaps he just came from Jerusalem, which is the center place of worship, of spiritual community. Like he just came from there. In other words, he just left church. And he walks by this man on the road and conveniently chooses to pass by on the other side taking a religious approach to neighboring this man. Now, let's kind of let him off the hook a little bit because he probably had some really good excuses. He probably thought, well, you know what? Like, I've got to get to the temple. I've got to get to the synagogue. Like, i got some really important things I've got to do. Or maybe he thought, you know what? Like, when I get to the synagogue today, I've got some really important jobs i got to do. And like, my robe, I can't get it dirty or bloody. And I mean, look at that guy. Like, I mean, he's half dead. Or maybe he thought, you know what? I can't stop. I love this one. I can't stop. But what I can do is I'll pray for him. I'll pray for him. And in that moment, this man, this priest, takes a religious approach to trying to neighbor this man. But here's the reality today. Is that there are many churches or church people today who just like the priests in the story, take the religious approach to neighboring the world around us. Maybe a lot like the priest We've got some really good excuses. We say things like, you know what, I'm really busy. Like I got a whole lot going on with church or we got these really important things that we're involved with and I just don't know that I have time. Or maybe we begin to think, you know what, I'm not comfortable maybe with really stopping. Like that looks like a messy situation and if I step into that, then I probably got to do this and maybe help him out with that and that's just a little too much for me. And so easy for us, just like the priests, to get caught in the religious approach of neighboring. But here's what I think we can all agree on today that our, our culture and our community has seen enough of the religious approach of neighboring. And quite honestly, for so many of them, if I may speak on their behalf as I hear them speak, is that that's why they're so tired of church and churchy people. Because here's what they long for. They long for someone who is really in love with Jesus. They long for someone who is really real and authentic about their life. And they long for someone who's willing to step into the mess and perhaps get a little messy with them so that they might neighbor them well. See, over five years ago, when God began birthing the vision for this house, this spiritual family of believers called the exchange, God made it very clear that this was not to be a house of religion. But this was to be a house built on the foundation of the unconditional love for, G- for us and for all people. And that's why I love that in the third verse of our foundational passage, right before the verse that defines the exchange of old life for new life, this is what Paul writes. This is what he wrote to the church at Corinth and to us. 2 Corinthians 5.16 So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Paul says, although it would be really easy to get caught up in that religious approach, just like the priest, the calling of God on us as followers of Jesus is to drop the wall of religion and to be willing to step into the mess to become the neighbor and the follower of Jesus that God has called us to be. See, the first approach that we see is, is a religious approach. But there, there's another one. There's a second. If you go back to the story, we'll see what we're going to call the self-centered approach. 
a self-centered approach. Verse 32, it says a Levite also passed by and he also chose to pass by on the other side of the road. Now, if you know anything about scripture, you understand anything about the New Testament, you realize a Levite was also known in this day as a religious leader, as a religious helper. Now, he wasn't on the level of the priest, but he helped out at the synagogue. He helped out at the temple to execute the duties for worship and for church. He was a church helper. But in this moment, what it says is that he follows the lead of the priest. And he also chooses to pass by on the other side. And now let's be real. The, the Levite, he probably had some really good excuses too. I mean, he probably was like, well, you know what? I don't know first aid. Like this guy clearly, he needs maybe a little CPR. And I just, I didn't go to that class. I don't know first aid. Maybe somebody with first aid will come next. Or maybe he looked at this man and he thought, you know what? This road, like I'm looking at, this road is really probably too dangerous for me to stop. Like it might just be one of us down. There might be two of us if I was to stop. Or, or maybe it maybe gets locked up in this one. He thought, you know what? I mean, that guy really had it coming. I mean, he knows how dangerous this road was and he chose to travel it by himself. Come on, man. It would have been really easy for him to roll out this list of excuses and perhaps he did and to take what we might label as a self-centered approach. But you see, as we flip that and again begin to apply it to our life and where we are, just like the Levite, unfortunately, I think for far too many of us, far too often, we too can get locked into this self-centered approach to neighboring those around us. Now, maybe for you, it's not a guy who's half dead on the side of the road. I get that. But maybe for you, maybe it's a classmate or a teammate that just, let's be honest, no one wants to hang out with them. Nobody ever really talks to them. They just don't gel with the rest of us. Or maybe... Those of you in the business world or on the job site, maybe it's a coworker that just doesn't click with the rest of the group at the office or on the job site. And it's like, you know what? It, they're there, but like, they're just not one of us. Or maybe it's even this real. Maybe for some of you, it's somebody within your own family. And you, everybody knows. I mean, it's just known. Like, they're kind of the outcast of the family. And you begin to think, just like these people think, everyone else has written these people off so it just makes sense for me to do the same thing. I mean, it's the logical, comfortable thing to do. And besides, we begin to think for me to engage that classmate, that coworker, or that family member, like how uncomfortable is that going to be? That's, that's going to be awkward. Like it's, it's going to go there. And if I was to step into that, like what, what might other people really say? Like what, what are the people at school going to say? At the office, what's the rest of my family going to say to me when I sit down and have lunch with that member of our family? And it would be very easy for us to buy into the self-centered approach, just like the Levite. But I love what Paul challenges us with in Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul again writes the hard stuff. And he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. I just read, erase all selfish ambition, live with humility, and value others above yourselves. I don't know about you, but I don't hear much room for a self-centered approach and that approach to neighboring the people that God's put around us. You know, there's a third man in the story, and there's a third approach I want us to look at, and that is what we would might label as the Christ-centered approach. 
the Christ-centered approach. In verse 33 of the story, if you know the story, it says a Samaritan man passed by. Now, we have to understand the importance of this guy being labeled as a Samaritan because in this moment, Jesus is telling the story to a group of Jews. Jews and Samaritans, they don't go together. They didn't hang out. In fact, the Jews who would have been listening to this story looked at the Samaritans and they counted them as outcasts, both physically and spiritually. So when Jesus automatically mentions a Samaritan, these guys are like, no, 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 not that guy, not that guy, because they didn't neighbor really well together if you're following. But in this moment, what Jesus begins to teach and what Jesus begins to say is that Christ-centered love knows no boundaries. There are none. And the Samaritan man not only stops, but he begins to help bandage the man and he loads him on his donkey and he carries him to the nearest inn where he helps the man find help and then he pays for his night's stay and then he comes back again to reimburse for the charges that have been generated. And out of all three of these men, let's think about it in, re- in real life, out of all three of these men who passed by, it would have made the most sense for that guy to keep going. That guy. He, he probably he could have stood behind the excuse. He's like, hey, my people and your people, they don't hang out. And a lot of people would have probably heard that and been like, no, you're right, man. Uh, that's, that's fine. Maybe somebody else can do it. But in the moment where he had to make the decision on what will I really do, he didn't allow religion to get caught up in his approach. He didn't allow self-centeredness on what are other people going to think or how comfortable is this for me? That's not what he made his decision on. But he chose to make a Christ-centered approach for this man to ensure that he found healing and help. And guess who became the elite demonstration of what it means to neighbor? Not the priest. Not the Levite. It's called the story of what? The Good Samaritan. Because this man chose to take that approach. And here's the truth today, church. When we celebrate the story, and it's a really, really good story, and you probably heard it a hundred times before if you grew up in church. And even like it's even influenced the secular world so much so to the point that like you may read a news story that's like, hey, the Good Samaritan stopped on the side of the interstate today to help somebody. Like they've adopted that phrase. And that's great, and it's a really, really good story. But unfortunately for so many of us who claim to be the followers of Jesus, the church of Jesus Christ, is that we fail far too often to make that our first approach. We run through the other list and we're like, okay, if we get down to the third option, maybe I'm going to get involved in this. But here's the hope today. My challenge for us, both personally and as a spiritual house, as a growing spiritual family, is that we would begin to lay aside, we would remove that religious approach. And we would begin to kill off and and, and, and execute that self-centered approach that creeps in far too easily. And that we would begin to be people who are overwhelmed to live out the Christ-centered approach to the world. Here's why. Here's why. Because that's not just a Bible story. It's not just a story of some fictitious dude who like got a badge for good deeds. And now we tell his story. That is a story of how our Savior Jesus approached you and me. I love what John says in his gospel, chapter 1, verse 14. I'm going to read it from the message uh, translation because I love what Eugene Peterson did with it. He says, the word, capital W, Jesus, became flesh and blood and moved into the what? Neighborhood. He moved into the neighborhood. 
And we saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory. He was like father, like son, and he was generous inside and out. He was the real deal, and he was true from start to finish. Here's the gospel, guys, that Jesus moved out of the neighborhood of heaven with his father, and he moved into our neighborhood of sin and chaos with the zookeeper here and the party animal here and the gossip at that house, and he goes, I'll take that lot. And he moved into our neighborhood, and he didn't find us well and prosperous, but he found us beaten and overcome by sin and the weight of this world, and he didn't pass by on the other side, praise God. But he says, Romans 5, while they were still sinners, while they were still in the mess, he stepped in, And he didn't just chip in some change to help out. But he paid the ultimate price, the greatest price with his life so that we might have hope and life and joy and freedom in Christ. And guess what? That became the standard of neighboring. That became the standard. And as we as the church that sing and worship and proclaim and follow that Savior, that one, the end of the neighborhood Savior, it means that we've got to be ready and willing and obedient at any moment to step in and become the Christ-centered neighbor that the world around us is looking for. And hear me clearly. Here's how we could totally miss this today. And if if you don't hear this, you, you, you could miss it. The goal today and the goal of next week, these two weeks together, it's not that we walk out of here and go execute just a list of good deeds. Like that, that'd probably be a good thing. Some people might take notice. But the goal is not that we walk out of here and execute a list of good deeds. Here's the goal. The goal of hearing this truth from Scripture is that we would see the way that Jesus has loved and neighbored us and we would be so overwhelmed by that. It would wreck us and we would go, man, that's going to change the way that I love and do life and neighbor everyone in my circle. The difficult family member, the outcast classmate, the coworker I can't stand. Rather than being overcome by frustration, I'm going to be overcome by Christ's love. Rather than being overcome by annoyance, I'm going to be overcome by Christ's love. And it's going to change the way that I neighbor everyone around me. But here's the cool part. I think it doesn't just stop there because we could read that and go like, yes, religious approach, self-centered approach, Christ-centered approach. Oh, that's easy. That's it. That's the one I want. But Luke 10, like the story, maybe you didn't catch it, but it actually gives us a couple of truths on what does it look like to be a Christ-centered neighbor. And so I want to catch those here before we close. The first thing I think we see is that Christ-centered neighboring begins with compassion and brokenness. Christ-centered neighbor begins with compassion and brokenness. Verse 33 says, The Samaritan man came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. In other words, this guy didn't act out of, like, obligation. He didn't act out of guilt. It wasn't that he had ten buddies back up the road, and he's like, well, I'm going to show them how good I am. That's not it. No, it says that he found the man, and he went to where he was, and he took pity on him. And he was moved by compassion and brokenness. Guess what? It's the same thing for us today, church. That when we look at the world around us and those God's called us to neighbor and influence, it's got to start with compassion and brokenness. Back last July, if you were with us, we did a series called One, 
where we looked at a passage of scripture in Ephesians. And and in the middle of that series, here's what we kind of laid out a truth. We said, hey, every one of us, all of us, every single day, we interact with people in our sphere of influence who are far from God. People who do not have the hope of Jesus. And so we begin to like fill out these cards and we're writing people's name down. And thus on the other side of the hall, we created this one wall where we put up names of literally now dozens and dozens and dozens of people that are in our world, like not on the other side of the earth, in our little stratosphere right here of the life we do every single week. And we went, that, that family member, that neighbor, that classmate, that coworker, they, they don't have the life that only Jesus offers. And we put that up on the other side of the wall. And if I'm really honest with you, every time I walk by that wall, and I, and I have a lot over the last eight months, but when I really stop and I begin to look and read the names, I don't know all the people there, but when I read the names, here's what I think. Our work is far from over. The job is not done. Like, we, like as much as God's done here, and it's been awesome, we have not got to the point as a spiritual house where we've neighbored so well that we're like, Kick back and relax, man, it is done. Yeah, no, we've not gotten there. And there's still so many people around us that don't have the hope in the life that we just declared a moment ago. But how does that start? With guilt, obligation? No. It starts with looking at that coworker or that other student on the bus and that other parent at the ball field and your heart breaking that they don't have the life that you have. They don't have the hope of Christ in them. So we've got to realize that Christ-centered neighboring always starts with compassion and brokenness. But here's the second and final truth, that Christ-centered neighboring always costs you something. It always costs you something. In Luke chapter 10, we just read where the Samaritan man does what? He doesn't just stop. Like that would have been good. The other two guys, they didn't even stop. This guy stops. But then what does he do? He stops. He gets messy. He begins to bandage the man and he pours his oil and his wine, which is an agent that helped with healing of his own resources on the man. And then I want you to think about this moment, how much fun this would have been. He didn't load him in the back of his minivan. He put him on his donkey that he was riding on. And then he walks, not just a block up the dirt road, but perhaps miles for multiple hours to find the inn where the man could find lodging and help and healing. And he doesn't just drop him off and be like, hey, text me with some updates. No, he, he engages with the man and he helps and he pays. And then he comes back again and he checks on him and he pays again. And in the story, it says that the Samaritan gave two denarii. Now we understand from this time, two denarii meant two full day's wages that he chipped in. So this man might find the help and the healing that he needed in this moment. And the Samaritan gave of his possessions, his time, his energy, and his resources to be the Christ-centered neighbor that this man needed. Here's what I know. Every day, every one of us encounter opportunities to be a Christ-centered neighbor to someone. Like, it's, it's coming tomorrow. You may not even know who they are, but like, they're coming in your world tomorrow. Maybe it's the person in the next cubicle. Maybe it's the person in the next desk. Maybe they're going to be at the ball field tomorrow night. Maybe you don't even know, and God's just going to drop them in your lap. But here's, here's where I get concerned about because I'm right there too. So many times the barrier to us saying yes to being a Christ-centered neighbor is the reality that it might cost us something. 
And we say, you know what? I just, I don't have, like, I don't have the time. Like, I got, I got a lot going on today. Or you know what? Which, like, bank account's a little low right now, and I just, I don't, I don't know that I can pitch in to help with that meal or to do this thing. Or we say, you know what? Like, like that, that would be really uncomfortable for me. And I just, I'm kind of an introvert. That's not really my zone. So, like, maybe I can find another extrovert, and they could step into this really awkward situation. And we, we begin to lay out our list of excuses, good, well-meaning excuses. But perhaps as you think about it in that moment, maybe we're missing the very divine opportunities that God puts in your path, your circle, your neighborhood, for you to have an eternal influence and impact on the world around you. This week I had breakfast um, with a man, I don't know, probably in his early 40s. And he's a husband, he's a father of three kids. And as he began to lay out his journey and his story for me, he told me about how over the next few months, he's about to pack up himself, his wife, his three kids, and they're going to move to the heart of India to speak the hope of Jesus to a Muslim people. Let's be honest. That's insane. That's crazy. Like, that's, that's illogical. Maybe people probably look at it like, you're a dad. You're a husband. Like, that's irresponsible. Have you not watched the news? Are you serious? But as I listened to this man lay out his story, it was so very clear and apparent that he was confident that the obedient call of God on him, on his wife, and on his kids was to become part of the neighborhood for these Muslim people Why? Because he realized that's the exact same way that Jesus neighbored him. And he was so overwhelmed, they were so overwhelmed by the love of Jesus for them that they said, how can we be a neighbor to these Muslim people? Ran across a quote this week, and it says this, Christ-centered love is not a sentimental feeling. Rather, it is a sacrificial action. It means interrupting my schedule, expending my money, risking my reputation, ruining my property, even for a stranger, so that I can do what is best for him. See, I think when we fully recognize, like not only just kind of play the game, but when we really begin to be gripped and wrecked by the greatness of God's love for us, and the price that Jesus paid to love and neighbor us, we will realize there is no price too great for us to pay, for us to love and neighbor the world around us. And see, the greatest question of the story was not what the expert in the law laid out. Like, he thought he got Jesus. He th- he's like, man, I got number one right, I got number two right, let me just kind of throw that little affirmation in there, get a little pat on the back, I'm the man. And the greatest question was not, Jesus, who's my neighbor? But Jesus flips the whole script. And the greatest question becomes, whose neighbor are you? And it became very personal. See, I think as the church today, built on the foundation, like the reason we exist, the reason we can sing Christ is enough, the reason we sing at the cross is where hope is found. As the church built on the foundation of the unconditional love of Jesus, our response today to that cannot be the religious approach. Self-centered approach won't work, but it must be the Christ-centered approach to look at our neighborhood, 
our circle of influence and to offer that invitation with love, with grace. Won't you be my neighbor? Thanks again for listening to this message. For more information about The Exchange or to find out how you can connect with or support what God is doing, visit www.theexchange.cc. Now go, be the church, and give life.